You're listening to audio from St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. How's everybody? All right. Well, good. Glad you're here. We are working our way through this teaching series, Jesus' Peeps. And as I was reminded, not everybody might know what Peeps is. So Peeps is people. Jesus is people. There we go. Okay. There we go. We've clarified that. Uh, I confess to you this morning, this is probably top five of one of a favorite passage for me. And uh, I think it's rich. I hope that you will find it to be the same. Let's go ahead and read scripture together this morning together. Here we go. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, we don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. We don't know what he did for a profession. We don't know who his family is. We don't know whether he was married. We don't know whether or not he had children. We really don't know what his crime was. Legend has it that he's a thief. But the scriptures don't actually tell us whether or not stealing was the sin that he committed. He's simply called a criminal. And the word criminal literally means the one who does evil. That's kind of a tough thing to overcome, yes? But I think he was a thief. And hopefully as we unpack our teaching today, it will make sense why. We don't know whether our thief was on the left or the right. We know very much that Jesus was in the middle. And the road to that thief's cross actually has a long and storied history that begins in Persia. The Persians were the ones who invented the practice of crucifixion. And the reason they did so was at the end of a battle, they would crucify all the remaining survivors. So that way, when they came to your town next, you wouldn't want to fight them because if you lost and you didn't die, well, a horrible death faced you. Pretty terrible. In fact, this is what the Persians did to the Greeks. And the Greeks repaid the favor about a few years later as they crucified 2,000 survivors from the Battle of Tyre. The Jewish people were not exempt from crucifying other people. In fact, the high uh, Sadducean leader, Alexander Janius, had 800 Pharisees crucified. 
about 100 years before Jesus' time. And their families watched in horror as their loved ones died. But I suspect the place that you would know crucifixion from the most, at least historically speaking, is from the Romans, because they perfected it. In fact, they utilized it as a spectacle. If you dare defy the powers of Rome, that is going to be you. You couldn't be a Roman citizen and be crucified. Typically, it was just left for the outsiders, and usually for only the gravest of crimes, things like treason, desertion, and rebellion. And if this was one of your crimes, do not be mistaken, the Romans would make a spectacle of you. Imagine this, this morning as you drove here to church on the corner of alumni and man of war, were people dying in agony and shame on a cross. It wasn't, you know, the back roads or the side roads or the back alleys. It was always out front and center. So that way people would know if you defy Rome... Well, this will be your plight. Now, if you were tried and executed as a criminal in the year AD 33, it meant so much more, at least spiritually speaking, than a horrible death. If you went with the Greco-Roman system of mythology or beliefs, I suppose you could call them, uh, people didn't believe that heaven existed, at least in the way that we think about it. No streets of gold or Maseratis or fishing trips, or lovely golf courses to play on all day. Really, what happened was you were a ghost or shade of what you once were. And it wasn't punitive. It wasn't negative. It really wasn't happy either. You just sort of existed. It's like, eh. You know, it's kind of like ramen noodles after you eat them so many times in college. Yeah, you know. That was your existence for the rest of all of eternity. It wasn't really happy. It wasn't really sad. It more or less just was. But there were some hard parts about it, too. See, if you were executed as a criminal, you couldn't often, anyway, be put in your family's tomb. It would desecrate it to a certain degree. You'd be buried outside the edges of town as a criminal. And in those days, if you were part of Greco-Roman culture, you would pay into a funeral society. Think of it as like a whole life policy. And when you died, you would have a group of people who would mourn you, professional mourners. I know this sounds strange to us, but people who would weep and wail as they made their way down the streets to let everybody know what a wonderful person you once were. And the more you paid into the society, of course, the more mourners that you got Uh, for along the way. But the problem was, if you were executed as a criminal, you not only lost rights to your property, not only was there a certain element of shame brought upon your family, but you really couldn't have a good burial. You forfeited the right to the funeral society. So again, we're back to a bit of gloom and doom. Now, if you're Jewish, well, that has its own problems along the way, because if you're executed as a criminal, unless you're martyred, well, this was shameful and disgraceful and sinful. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21 says if someone has committed a crime punishable by death and they're put to death and you hang them on a tree, their body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed. Cursed by God. And similar to Greco-Roman culture, you couldn't be buried with your ancestors. It would desecrate the family tomb. You'd be buried outside the city. Your family disowned you, and people disowned your family. Often they wouldn't do business with people who had criminals 
and their family. The rabbis said that there were one of two places that the deceased went in those days, either paradise or Gehenna. Gehenna we tend to equate with hell. And this is actually a picture of Gehenna. It's a valley that exists outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, it's cleaned up quite a bit today because nobody wants to see nasty stuff as you come on into the way of town. But if you're in the days of Jesus, what you would recognize is Gehenna is sort of this desolate wasteland where everybody's trash is put out and is constantly on fire. You know, surely composting and those kinds of things worked in those days, but more often than not, people burned their trash. And so Gehenna was not a happy place because it was outside the life of the city, outside the temple, outside the presence of your family and the presence of God. And so to go to Gehenna, that's not exactly a great eternal existence. And that's what Jesus used for those who were unrighteous. And yet paradise was a different story. Paradise was great. You wanted to go there. You know, I think Jesus was very much a Methodist because in paradise there was a great potluck <laughs> that would exist for all of eternity where you and, and your loved ones and the righteous ones of God would, would celebrate forever and there would be no more suffering or mourning or crying or pain and so on and so forth. So paradise was great. It was sort of the, the Genesis 1 and 2 creation once lost having been recovered. That's where you wanted to go. But thieves don't go there. And so I want you to picture for just a moment this thief from the perspective of the cross, looking down at the scene of all that's happening. In fact, there is a painting uh, done by someone named Tissot that captures this. You can check it out for yourself online today. There are pictures posted of it everywhere. And the perspective is of... Uh, someone looking down from the cross. And there's a whole lot of activity that's happening around the cross. I can't imagine what must have been going through the thief's mind. If he's Jewish, it's Gehenna. If he's Greco-Roman, it's shades of what he once was. It's abandonment by family and everything else. But he also begins to hear all that's happening around him. And there are shouts from everywhere. He saved others. Let him save himself. Let's make this the he saved others, let him save himself section. Cry it out. He saved others, let him save himself. I thought this was the retired preacher section. Come on. <laughs> well, he didn't just hear that. He also heard, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. All right, we got something working there. And that wasn't it. He heard from the other criminal that's crucified opposite him, aren't you the Christ, save yourself and us? And as for the fourth section, there's going to come a word that's really, really important. And we need to hear it. It's stop. Stop. Yes, that had some chutzpah. So I want you to picture this now. The thief is on the cross and he hears, ooh, they came around. And then they heard, and he heard, but it really sounded like this. And eventually he yelled. Maybe not verbally anyway, 
But I think everything stopped for him in that moment. As the taunts and the jeers were coming from every direction as he's on the cross, every breath from his body is becoming more labored. I think the thief stopped. Because for the first moment in his life, at least in some time, he stopped to realize it wasn't about him. And that's hard, isn't it? Because the human condition says what? I'm first. And if it's at your expense, well, I mean, that's why we sin, isn't it? This is what I wanted in the moment. This is what was best for me. There's a fascinating social experiment. Go to a big box store sometime that only has one lane open, clump a number of people in the same place, and you'll find out how this thing expresses itself. And if that doesn't work, go to the toilet paper aisle, hide all but one package, (laughs) and then you'll see humanity at its finest. Because it's about me, right? And I suspect somewhere along the way, the thief, that's exactly what happened to him. It was all about him, what I needed, what I want, what I deserve, what's fair, what, so on and so forth. And yet finally, for the first time, at least in some time, he looked at the cross and he, he watched all of the onlookers saying these rotten things and he thought, my goodness, why do they hate him so badly? Why do they keep saying, save yourself? Why do I keep hearing this word, save, over and over and over again? And he began to think about more than his own situation. That word save is a powerful one. It means to make safe, to save from a threat, to deliver. It's the kind of word that you want to hear when you're out of options, isn't it? In the ancient world, more often than not, it was used as the preservation of someone's life in light of a judicial condemnation. Imagine you're about to be tortured and killed, and someone walks in and says, no, I'll save this one. It's funny how we use it in our culture today, isn't it? Save a document. Save me a seat. Save me from a meeting. Save me from a family gathering. (laughs) Save me a place in line. It's funny how we use it, isn't it? And the Old Testament reveals a God who delivers and saves from dangers, disasters, from the pit of Gehenna, who saves us not only from our circumstances, but also from ourselves from the decisions that we make. And Jesus' message of salvation is simple. The kingdom is near. God's power and presence to heal you, to save you from sin and death, and to grant you eternal life is near. Stop doing what you're doing and believe this. And so our thief hears all of these voices, and he sees Jesus who forgives the ones who have harmed him who ask God to forgive them. They don't know what it is that they're doing. And he thinks, why him? Why have they killed him? What have they done? What did he do to deserve this? And what happens next, to me, is is incredibly profound, I think is the word. 
Because it's not Peter, James, and John. Those are the three guys we would expect to defend Jesus in such a moment. They were part of his inner crew. Or, or it's not the nine of who are part of the other 12 disciples who, who stopped the crowds and the religious authorities and the, and the onlookers from all of the shame being heaped upon him. It's not him. It's not Mary, his mother. It's not Mary Magdalene who he cast seven demons from. It. It's not anybody but this thief on a cross who says, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for receiving the due reward of our deeds? But this man, this man's done nothing wrong. That word fear is a powerful one. In fact, the book of Proverbs chapter three says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the reason it's the beginning of wisdom is this. You become wise when you realize that God is God and you're not. And when that happens, God can save you from anything. So what happened in the thief's heart and mind, I think, is powerful. And it forms a point of reflection for us today. It's really this question, which thief am I? I suppose at one level, it's simple, right? Am I the thief who said, hey, Jesus, get us out of here. Save yourself and us. Or on the other hand, are we more like the thief who said, well, we kind of deserve this, but this guy right here, he's done nothing wrong. That, that's, that's the base level. But even more, I wonder, in what ways do we rob God? When's the last time we've said thanks beyond a Sunday morning service or at lunch or dinner? Or maybe breakfast if it's not on the run. Or when's the last time we recognize the grace of God and the way that it's working in our lives? When's the last time we stop to say, God, thank you for more than just the breath in my lungs, but everything that I am and everything that I have? And here's the lesson, friends. You can't shoplift salvation. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can only say thanks for it and receive it on God's terms and not your own. The one thief, he wanted to steal salvation with no surrender. And the other thief saw the salvation of God in the waning moments of his life and in surrendering was invited into paradise. Look at what the scripture says. Our thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you today, not a week from now, not when you get it together, not after you take the class, not after a time of proving yourself, but the grace of God reaches out to this thief on the cross and says, today, today you'll be with me. Today you'll be in the holy Methodist potluck for all of eternity. You know, there's an island in New York Harbor called Heart Island. And on it is a place called Potter's Field. Potter's Field is a cemetery that is used since 1869 to bury over a million people. And they're the forgotten outcasts of society. The people who have died without a proper funeral, without a proper burial, without family there or any kind of funeral society or the like. And every day on the way to Potter's Field are the most precious 
cargo, people who are created in the image of God, whom God loves, who God desires to save and redeem. And their life ends in trenches that are 50 yards long, stacked by three high. And here's the truth that'll slap you in the face this morning on a rainy day. Whether it's Potter's Field or Lexington Cemetery, that's where life as we know it ends. And yet the good news of the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, is that whatever mess you're in, thief or not, whether you think you're more righteous than or you think you're the, the least of, God's grace comes to meet us. So whatever mess you're in today, whether you feel close to God or far away, whether you feel like you're on the mountaintop with him or stuck in a death spiral, like the thief, if we'll cry out, remember me, save me, not because I deserve it, but because you're good, Jesus meets us and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. May we remember we're all just thieves in our own way. And the good news is this. The grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord meets us in our situation. Let's cast our hope and our care on him. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for grace. Because grace is the good news. Much like Pastor Ben showed us this morning, we deserved one thing, and yet you gave us something far better and beyond. And so this morning, oh God, we recognize our need for forgiveness. That wisdom is the recognition you're God and we're not. And so we pray, God, that you would forgive us for the ways that we've tried to shoplift salvation, for thinking we're better than someone else for thinking we've got it all together and looking past the shortcomings in our own lives. And so, Jesus, we cast ourselves at the foot of the cross this morning and pray that you would forgive us and heal us and change our lives. We thank you that you died on a cross, you rose again on the third day to give us grace, not grace that we take, not grace that we deserve, but grace that we simply receive by faith. And so thank you. Thank you for this gift. Be Lord and Savior of our lives and over all we do and over this, your church. We pray this in and through the name of the one who lived and died and rose again, the author and giver of grace, Jesus the Christ. Amen.